0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: This podcast contains discussions of violence and human rights abuses. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to SIAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Anusa Luang Supom, known as Jack was the administrator of a Facebook page that served as a platform for public political debate in Mm. Laos. At just 25 years of age, Jack was one of a growing number of young Laos citizens who were becoming more vocal about their country's lack of political freedoms. But on 29 April 2023, an unknown assailant attempted to murder Jack, shooting him twice at close range in a Vientiane coffee shop. This act of violence is just the latest in a growing list of human rights abuses against those who have sought to promote political transparency and freedom in Laos. Laos has long been an authoritarian state with no tolerance for public criticism, but increasingly it appears to be also becoming a criminal state, where corrupt elites have enmeshed themselves within the state apparatus for the purpose of accumulating wealth. To discuss how Laos has become a criminal state, I am joined by Dr. Kieran Sims, Senior Lecturer in Development Studies at James Cook University. Kieran researches the politics of development and regional connectivity within mainland Southeast Asia with a focus on ethical and inclusive development. His recent work examines the intersections between extractive development, criminality, and human rights. He is the author of numerous academic articles and media publications, and lead editor of the Rutledge Handbook of Global Development. Kieran has previously appeared on the SIAC Stories podcast to talk about the intersectional violence of large-scale infrastructure development in Laos, and it's an absolute pleasure to welcome him back to SIAC Stories. Hi, Kieran. Thanks for joining us.
0: Hi, Natalie. Thank you very much for having me again.
1: So I started with this story about Anusa Luang-Supom, or Jack. Can you tell us what happened to him? Did he recover from this shooting?
0: Yes. He did recover, thankfully, as you said, Natalie. Jack was a 25-year-old social media activist from Lao. He runs two Facebook pages, one of which is a closed group page, and the other of which is a public page. And those pages, respectively, had or have over six thousand eight hundred and forty-one thousand followers. Those pages are platforms for public debate on social, environmental, economic and political rights in Laos. And that includes discussion of rights violations, discussion about child rights and LGBTQI rights, and discussions about other politically sensitive topics, such as China's growing presence in Laos. So one of the hashtags that users would adopt, for example, translates to, if only Lao politics were good, while the private group's motto reportedly is fighting for Laos' survival so we don't become China's slave.
1: Wow, that is a very pointed hashtag. Are these Facebook pages that he's administering, the public and the private ones, are they still active? Is he still administering them, or have they become dormant while he's recovering?
0: Since Jack was shot, he was first taken to hospital in the Mianchang's Friendship Hospital, and initial media reports indicated that he died. That later proved to be false. It appears that his family had reported him dead through fears of further attacks. And then in early May, he was medically evacuated abroad to an unspecified location in order to receive further medical treatment. There were reports from the Minutia Foundation that he had a severe injury to his tongue and a bullet stuck in his lung. But Jack has recently posted on one of his Facebook pages to tell his followers that he's recovering and in his words that he will discuss the incident once he's fully recovered. And there's still a lot of lively chatter going on online, Natalie.
1: About the reasons for his attempted assassination or is there speculation about where he's hiding out? What, what is this online chatter pertaining to? Or is it more directed at the fact that an assassination attempt was made against a, a rights activist?
0: All of those things, actually, Natalie. So there's been updated reporting on, on Jack's movements, condition, and on the potential possible causes behind his attempted murder.
1: I think what really strikes me about what, what happened to Jack is that this is not a one-off incident. So even since the attempted assassination against Jack on the 29th of April, there's been another attempt against a Laos right activist. And in this case, this activist was actually executed. Can you tell us about, excuse my pronunciation here, Bunswan Kittiyano, and what happened to him in Thailand?
0: Yeah, that's correct, Natalie. So Mr. Bunsuan was shot just about two weeks after Jack. Similar kind of execution-style attack with one shot to his face and two shots to the body. Mr. Bunsuan was also a Lao political activist who'd been living in Thailand for a number of years, and that's where he was shot. And reportedly, he was planning to travel to Australia just a week or so later as a UNHCR refugee.
1: So let's take a step back. You've told us about this attempted assassination and the successful execution against these two human rights activists from Laos. Taking a step back and thinking about Laos, we do tend to see it represented as a development success story, as maybe one of Southeast Asia's quiet achievers. It is described as the battery of Southeast Asia, very much focused on exporting energy to, to its neighbours. What is this success narrative based on and why has it prevailed for so long?
0: Yeah, thanks, Natalie. I think that's an accurate description of Lao and I think that narrative of success has been predominantly built around strong economic growth rates. These economic growth rates were strong for more than a decade, above 7%. In the lead up to the COVID-19 pandemic and also a big reduction in Laos absolute poverty rate alongside infrastructure expansion across the country and the growth of an urban middle class so it's worth noting that Laos came out of the second Indochina war as the most heavily bombed country in history prior to that it was a former colony of the French and part of French Indochina and the French arrived in Laos at a particular historical moment when the former Kingdom of Xang had recently suffered a devastating defeat to Siam. So Laos started from a very low level of modernisation when it became an independent nation-state, and it had substantial legacies of war to contend with, including really widespread unexploded ordnance. So it has undergone some quite profound transformations from that time, including many good changes as we sort of broadly describe or define development. But I think there's also some really important questions that need to be asked around what has driven that transformation, that rapid modernization, and what have the costs been? And what I argue in my research is that strong economic growth and associated Poverty alleviation in Laos has really been driven by an extractivist development model that is unsustainable, that has been fueled by debt, and that has had really wide ranging negative social and environmental effects. And the severity of these effects have often been masked by heavy political oppression and a silencing of those communities who have lost their lands, incomes, livelihoods, and other assets because they've been seen as being in the way of development or progress.
1: So what you're painting for us here is a picture where Laos has achieved success against certain markers, but it seems that in recent years, we're becoming more aware that it hasn't been successful across the board. And the impact of pressures like this rising sovereign debt, for example, is revealing the cost of this success on people and communities and on citizens in particular. Yeah, I think that's right. And
0: I think this success story narrative that has sort of prevailed for so long has been one that's been presented by, not just by the Lao government, but by multilateral development banks, the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, for example, and by many foreign donors and investors who have really used rather simplistic and econocentric measures of development in order to tell this story of success and to claim that what they've been doing has been bringing widespread improvements in people's lives. And I think from afar, there is a success story around nation state building and the expansion of a market economy. But as you highlight, it's when we look closely that things become much more complicated And that forces of development reveal themselves to often be quite violent and to often further disadvantage vulnerable and impoverished communities. And there's been a substantial and growing body of critical scholarship around now that has detailed these ill effects for some time, though I think on the whole this still continues to be generally ignored in major development reports about the country.
1: Well, that's why your recent article in the Diplomat, which I think you you mentioned, was really quite shocking because it seems to me that people are not really talking about the undercurrents of what is happening in Laos. And as you yourself argue, Laos has long been considered an authoritarian state, but it's only recently that it's sort of tipped the scales towards becoming a criminal state. Where is that line between being an authoritarian state and being a criminal state and when did Laos cross it?
0: It's an interesting question, perhaps when did things start to become so dire. I don't think there's a line per se and I couldn't identify a specific moment but I also think unfortunately the direction that Laos has headed in has not surprised most long-term observers. There's always been hope for a change in direction towards more sustainable, more inclusive development. There's been plenty of individuals and actors in Lao that have provided examples of what that would look like. But this movement towards increasing authoritarianism, corruption, and the idea of a criminal state has also been, unfortunately, not too difficult to predict and I think we know that the Lao People's Revolutionary Party has ruled as a single party state without political opposition for coming up to 50 years now since 1975 and over that time we've also seen elite families building their wealth and influence so it's hard to identify a particular line to be crossed though I guess if I was going to identify one single factor I think the growth of foreign investment from the mid to late 2000s onwards has, has really seen an acceleration in these trends of, of criminality and corruption.
1: And is that because there is the opportunity to benefit from the wealth that is being invested in the country that is coming in through these infrastructure developments? Yeah, absolutely that is the case.
0: So the reason I mentioned foreign investment, I think, is because it creates increasing opportunities the foreign aid to the country has always provided these opportunities as well. But I think with foreign direct investment, we've seen even more opportunity. And we've also just seen over time, this kind of forms of elite power build over time. And in Laos, the political landscape has been so stable that elite power has just continued to expand and, and create new opportunities.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I want to give you the opportunity to tell us a little bit more about Laos's quite appalling human rights record, and in particular, this catalogue of abuses that exists against dissidents from 2012 onwards. Can you share with us a little bit more in detail about Laos's track record when it comes to human rights?
0: Yes, definitely. And I think that's an important thing to do, actually. So it seems that we're in the midst of a heightened party state crackdown at the moment, on political freedoms just a week before jack once attempted murder there was another human rights activist who was a member of the thailand-based free lao group mr Savang Paluth, who was reportedly arrested when returning to lao to visit his home village and is now a suspected victim of enforced disappearance as we've discussed just two weeks after mr Jack's shooting, Mr. Bonsuan Kidiano, was also murdered in neighbouring Thailand. And the response by the police so far to that case was to suggest that he was the victim of a personal dispute. This has been a common response that we've seen over time with the same response for Jack's attempted murder and also for other famous cases, such as the enforced disappearance of Sombat Sompon, who was also alleged to be victim of a personal dispute, despite being stopped at a police checkpoint by police on a major road in Vientiane and then abducted in the presence of police. So perhaps I'll be pinned with Mr. Sombat Pon's disappearance. Most well known internationally, Sombat Sompon was a community development worker. Who sought to steer Lao away from extractivist development towards more sustainable and inclusive approaches? And he was abducted in December 2012, as I've described, at a police checkpoint in Vientiane. Then in early 2016, Mr. Sompon Pemason, Mr. Sukhan Chaitad, and Mr. Lodkhan Temavong, who were all human rights defenders and members of the group Free Lao, were arrested following their return from Lao. Lao from Thailand, they were all tried in secret and they were sentenced respectively to 20 years, 16 years and 12 years imprisonment for acts of betrayal towards the nation and propaganda against the state. Also in 2016, Mr. Itapol Sukpan, a Thai citizen who had criticised the Thai military, disappeared in dien Chan and has not been seen since. While in 2017, Mr. Woody Pong Kachatamakul, another Thai activist, was abducted in Vien Chun while with his wife and friend who were tied and blindfolded and left at the scene. His whereabouts also remains unknown. In December 2018, Mr. Surachai Danwatanasorn and Mr. Chadawan Bupawan and Mr. Kradej Lulet were all prominent Thai political activists who fled to Lao in twenty fourteen and then subsequently disappeared while in Lao. Mr Surtai has not been seen since, while the remains of Mr Chatuan and Mr Kradai were found on the banks of the Mekong River later that month in december twenty eighteen. In august twenty nineteen, Mr Odsayavong, a Lao migrant worker living in Bangkok, who is a member of Free Lao, disappeared and has not been seen since. Odd's housemate in Bangkok, Mr. Petpaton Pillachai, also a member of Free Lao, returned to Laos in November and was reportedly arrested by police in Vientiane, with his whereabouts remaining unknown. In November 2019, Mrs. Huayang Saitabuli was sentenced to five years in prison and a fine of 20 million kip for her criticisms of the Lao government on social media, particularly regarding its failures to adequately support victims of the Sipyan Si Nam Saddleby Dam collapse, which resulted in 71 people's immediate deaths and which directly affected more than 14,000 people who lost houses, crops, livestock and other assets in the resultant flooding. In July 2020, the body of Mr Pugong Sai Sang, an activist who had earlier that year been engaging with a pro-democracy diaspora organisation, was found with signs of firearm wounds. The family reported his death to the police, but to date, there's been no results from any investigation. In March 2020, four indigenous Hmong citizens of Laos disappeared from the Pubia Mountain Forest, and in March 2021, Mr Chuyuabang, a 63-year-old male and a relative of two of the disappeared girls from 2020, was killed in the forest by the army. A disturbing photo of Mr Vang Bonnie was then taken by the soldiers responsible for his killing and disseminated among the Wong community. In October 2022, the preacher Sai Sang Manin was reportedly abducted by three men who pushed him violently into a truck and drove away, and his severely disfigured body was discovered three days later near his home village in Kamauan, province. As I've mentioned already, in April of this year, Mr. Savan Palus, another human rights defender and member of Free Lao, was arrested by police in April and his whereabouts remain unknown. Mr. Bunsen Kiriyano was murdered in Thailand and we have the attempted murder of Jack Blancifong. So there's an almost year-on-year track record here, Natalie, of executions, arbitrary detentions. And enforced disappearances, which needs to be, I think, more widely acknowledged, particularly given that Lao has historically been a country where political dissent is uncommon. So the number of cases here really stands out because of the few number of people that are engaging in any form of political opposition. And I've only chronicled some of the more well-known cases and some of the more well-known cases from 2004 onwards. There's a much longer history of political violence against Lao dis- dissidents. I recently discovered, for example, a New York Times piece from February 1978, reporting on 3 Laotian refugees in Thailand who were extradited back to Lao and then shot without provocation. So this has really been happening from the earliest years of of the regime.
1: Kieran, it's really heartbreaking list, actually, to hear those names. And I wanted to give you the space to say their names because people are not hearing enough about what is going on in Laos. So thank you for the careful cataloguing of the abuses that Lao citizens have experienced. What sort of effect is it having on the political activist and dissident community? Is it having a chilling effect or are people continuing to speak out? I think
0: both are happening. It's definitely having a chilling effect. We saw particularly with the case of Sombat Sompon in 2012, In the lead up to Songbat's disappearance, there was a sense that there might have been some change occurring in Laos and that political freedom, just in the form of being able to publicly discuss sensitive issues, might have been changing. Songbat's disappearance was a really strong message to the people of Laos because he wasn't a political activist or a political dissident. He was simply a community development worker who would spent his entire career trying to work productively with the government. So the reason I provide the year-on-year catalogue of disappearances, arrests and abductions is because this appears to be a very clear strategy of the Lao People's Revolutionary Party to create fear within the population. And I think it's been a very successful strategy over the longer period of time, however, we're now starting to see more and more pushback against that oppression, particularly by young people in Laos, particularly using online tools like social media and and also following COVID-19 pandemic and increasing hardship in people's lives due to depreciation of the kip, rising inflation and other economic challenges. So it does feel like despite increasing oppression there is also some increasing efforts to to create more political freedom.
1: Now you've you've outlined these arbitrary detentions, the enforced disappearances which is such a, a dreadful term and these execution style killings. Can you tell us a bit about some of the the human rights abuses in relation to human trafficking in in the golden triangle in particular?
0: Yeah, sure. So one of the reasons that I proposed in that recent piece for the Diplomat that you mentioned that Laos can be considered a criminal state is because of its involvement with the Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone. I think it's a really important case to consider. Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone was established in 2007. It's in Bokeo Province in the north of Laos within the Golden Triangle region. The zone was set up through a public-private partnership between the Lao government and a number of stakeholders, including an individual by the name of Xiao Wei, who is the zone's chairman and also an internationally recognized violent criminal who's alleged to be involved in the trafficking of people, drugs, wildlife, and other goods. Now the Lao government entered into a joint venture partnership with Xiao Wei, despite his extensive and highly violent criminal history with the strategy to expand the special economic zone off the back of casino tourism. And in fact, one of the motivating factors for Zhao to open his King's Roman casino in northern Laos was that the Chinese government had previously imposed measures to restrict the flow of Chinese gamblers to his casinos in Myanmar due to all the violence that was taking place there. And in fact, on one of my first visits to the casino in 2011, in addition to seeing thousands of Burmese migrant workers, I also found that the roulette chips within the casino had been imported from the Lam Tong Casino in Myanmar. So this special economic zone has been for a long time surrounded by illicit flows and criminal activity. What we're seeing from pandemic onwards There's been this really significant increase in human trafficking that you've mentioned. So the Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone has become one of a number of hubs or hotspots for cyber scamming around cryptocurrencies within mainland Southeast Asia. There's reportedly been thousands of victims from more than 20 countries trafficked into the Golden Triangle Special Economic Zone as well as a large number of domestically trafficked victims to provide a labor force of cyber scammers. And these victims have been subjected to long working hours for weeks on end with few days of rest. Some have experienced beatings, electrocutions, forms of torture. People are being deprived of food and water. They're being imprisoned in buildings and compounds sometimes being handcuffed to beds or other structures and there's been reports of murders and of suicides occurring. Now what's significant with respect to the idea of the criminal state is that this is taking place in a special economic zone in which the Lao government has substantial ownership stake and in October 2022 during fairly pervasive international media reporting on this trafficking to the Special Economic Zone. The Lao government actually awarded Xiaowei a medal of bravery for his contributions to national defense and public security. An airport being built to the east of the zone is being undertaken in another joint venture between the government and Xiaowei. And a company that Xiao Wei owns is building a $50 million port north of the zone, which is in a place that some listeners will know is close proximity to what was called the Mekong Massacre, an event that's related to the extensive trafficking of narcotics through this region.
1: I did want to ask you finally, before we wrap up, about this mysterious death of a Canadian national, Nara Petch, I think his name was, who died in 2015 from stab wounds inflicted at the International Airport in Vientiane. Can you tell us briefly about this case? Yeah, so this
0: is a difficult one to collect information on. There wasn't a lot of media reporting and been challenging to find information elsewhere, but What was really striking about Nara's case is that this was a Canadian citizen who was murdered inside Vientiane's Vakai International Airport after already having passed through security checkpoints and already having a boarding pass for his flight. He died of multiple stab wounds, which initial reporting from the Lao government said that he died from pulling a vending machine on top of himself and that broken glass had caused these injuries. That story was then changed to him stabbing himself and then later autopsies revealed that he had been, in fact been stabbed. There was CCTV footage of the event that was, was withheld from investigators and from the family of the deceased. I don't know a great deal more beyond that but the reason why I find this case so significant is two reasons. One, that it's an international tourist and that it's inside an international airport where this violence has occurred. And two, because the case is so so little is known about it. And I think that really speaks to, as well, the Lao government's ability to suppress information around these kind of violent attacks, whether or not the government was linked to this violence or not, which is unknown.
1: So it seems to me the litany of abuses that you've outlined for us during this podcast that the Lao government is sending a message that is directed at a domestic audience in order to maintain its rule at any cost. But you say that this is also a message that the international community needs to hear, which is why this case of the Canadian is, is particularly interesting. And so with that in mind, do you think that international donors and development organisations are meeting their obligations when it comes to reporting on these abuses? I don't think they are in most cases. I say that recognising
0: difficulties of donors and particularly of civil society organisations speaking out about these issues. They operate in highly politically sensitive environments. They need to think about the safety of their staff, both international and domestic staff. So it's not that I would seek to be condemning civil society organisations too much, but I do think that there is a need by both civil society actors and by international donors to bring more attention to what's happening. And I think, Natalie, just to give a, a brief, very recent example, just About two weeks ago, 15th of 16th of May, Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong was visiting Laos. This was just two weeks after Jack Luancefong's attempted execution, and yet there's been no public reference to this matter being discussed by the Minister. Instead, a media release on Minister Wong's webpage references a 70-year friendship between Australia and Laos and the intention to elevate Australia's relationship with Laos to a comprehensive partnership. What's more, the recent shooting that we've discussed of another Lao rights activist in Thailand, Mr. Buntzuan, who reportedly had UNHCR status and who was reportedly planning to travel to Australia just a week before he was murdered, that execution occurred while Minister Wong was visiting Laos. Now, when a political refugee who is seeking or has been granted asylum in Australia is executed while our foreign minister is in-country meeting with political leadership, we must assume either that the Lao People Revolutionary Party in fact has little interest in maintaining warm diplomatic relations with Australia, or that the party is confident that such gross human rights abuses will largely be ignored by foreign donors like Australia and will not have any real repercussions for aid or foreign investment flows.
1: Indeed. Well said, Kieran. Let me wrap up by asking you about the impact on your own research. You know, this is particularly sensitive research that you've undertaken and shared. Where do you see your research going in the future? I think
0: my research has been somewhat politically sensitive for a number of years. Lots of research in Laos is politically sensitive. I think the more recent research probably is moving into new areas that are even more sensitive, and I think that will bring a number of challenges for future research. And at this point, Natalie, I just feel that this is work that really needs to be done, um, and it feels somewhat of a calling that, that somebody needs to be doing this this more of this kind of research. Um, so I recognise the sensitivities, and they will present, present challenges, but I'll have to find ways to navigate that.
1: Well, thank you, Kieran, for doing the work and contributing to this this broader cause of shining a light on what is going on in, in Laos and for sharing that research with us on the CX Stories podcast today. We wish you all the best. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Natalie. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you and I just want to really pick highly of all the work that SIAC does. I think you do really great work for all your studies in Australia, so thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Kieran. You've been listening to SIAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SIAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.